0: Hello and welcome to A Gay Old Time. My name is Nigel May. You may know me from things I've presented on the TV. You may know me as a host from my radio shows, or you may have read one of my novels. You may not know me at all, and that's just fine, but anyone who does know me will know that I am very proud to be a gay man and hugely proud to be part of a beautiful queer community. This podcast is a celebration of that community, of its many beautiful people, people of all ages, people who have fought with their emotions and who have faced struggles and emerged victorious, who have had to tread their own path in life to live their real truth. People who inspire, who aspire, and who always entertain. People who matter. Each episode, I'll speak to a person from our LGBTQIA plus rainbow, discuss their journey and their thoughts in our rich and varied queer community. One person, one life, one conversation, and I can guarantee a gay old time. My guest today is Margaret Cho, comedian, actress, advocate, entrepreneur and multiple Grammy and Emmy nominee. She has been named by Vogue magazine as one of the best female comedians of all time. Margaret started performing comedy at the age of 14 and now performs to sell-out crowds all over the world. She is openly bisexual, but isn't sure if that is exactly the right term for her gender. She is a huge champion of LGBTQIA plus rights and admits to being obsessed with gay men. It was Cho who launched a website promoting the legalization of gay marriage in America. Margaret, welcome to A Gay Old Time. So now let's say hello to Margaret Cho and welcome to A Gay Old Time. Thank you. You are very welcome, Margaret. There is so much to talk about. I mean, your life literally is a rich tapestry of of interest. But I want to go right back to the beginning, if I may. Um, You were raised in a very diverse neighborhood in Ocean Beach, a section of San Francisco. What are your memories of that time?
1: It was very cold. And then whenever I go to uh, Scotland, I feel like I'm back there because the cloud cover, the way the sky looks, the light, the way that the... um, the air is so dense and wet, it has the exact same emotional uh, response that this or my homeland, like my homeland of San Francisco. And it's like every day feels like Sunday, which is that's like Manchester, but it's very that it's very coastal, very cold, very. Um, it's very diverse. Actually, there's a lot of uh, Chinese families, there's a lot of Irish families, which causes a kind of a quasi-West Side Story effect, where you have lots of uh, intense romances going between um, those communities as well as uh, rivalries. And so, yeah, that's what I remember from growing up there.
0: Uh, What were you like as a child, Margaret?
1: Very troubled and constantly worried the planet was going to run out of water. I was a really early climate change activist. (laughs) I mean, as much as an activist you could be in that like in the early 70s, I was very concerned about it. So I would always try to talk to people about it. And I realize now that it might have just been, I'm not sure if it's its a kind of neurodivergence, but there's a hyperfixation on things. So it's very hyperfixated on that kind of stuff. And so it's a very odd, um, uncomfortable child.
0: What were you like at school? I mean, did you have childhood heroes, like a favorite teacher? Were you a good student?
1: I was a pretty good student. Up until I discovered alcohol and drugs, which would have been around 14. But until then, I was a really actually very devoted student. I really enjoyed it, actually. Like I found it really uh, engaging and I found it really uh, inspiring. And I had a couple of teachers who were incredibly encouraging. One teacher in particular, he was a very interesting man. He was a Southern Man, he looked like whenever I see Zac Efron in the Iron Claw, the previous, he had that sort of Prince Valiant haircut and um, big buff body. He wear like these leather jackets and he was um, trade acting gay like he was sort of like a rough trade, like but you wouldn't have known it at that time. Like, no, his private life was really from everyone. And, um, but he was a gay man and he was, uh, this is in San Francisco, and he was really encouraging about my writing. And he would always say that I was going to be famous because of my writing. And, uh, and I would write these uh, creative writing things and turn them in and he would fill the margins with praise. And he ended up getting murdered by a trick. This was in uh, the very early 80s. And so he was murdered by some young man who had come home with him who was having a crystal meth episode or this was probably Crank. This is our early 80s. And so he was murdered. And I remember coming to school, going to that class and all of the terrible boys in my class making fun of the fact that we had a substitute teacher because our teacher had been murdered because he was gay and just talking about it in such horrifying terms. And I remember that was actually the last day I went to school because I was just like, this is not... This is not the environment that I want to be in, and I I remember that so clearly. Being so disgusted by the casual homophobia of these children about this man who I love, who was really instrumental in my coming to understand language and coming to appreciate language and understanding that I had an ability in language, and so it was a really painful awakening to the horrors of homophobia, which I'm, I'm no stranger to. You know, it's a big part of my existence, seeing, witnessing homophobia in its different aspects, incarnations. And this was one of the most uh, dire.
0: When was your first perception of sexuality, like sexuality around you, but also your own sexuality?
1: Early on, like, you know, in the 70s and the 80s, we were really unminded. Like, un. we didn't have like the helicopter parents idea. Like, um, we didn't have... And my parents were really at work all the time. So there was not a sense of a danger or stranger danger or anything. So I was really like very free range. A lot of the kids around me, we were really free range. And so we would always see, um, I remember one time this man drove up next to a group of girls and I, and he got out of the car and he was completely naked and he started doing jumping jacks and this, this penis like flipping up and down. And it was just so shocking. And that feeling of danger, but also the surreal comedy of what is even happening. So that kind of thing was so constant. So uh, the first inkling of sexuality that I had was a real surreal danger of older men acting out in really inappropriate ways around children that was a part of being a child. And it was really, um, I think, one of the reasons why. When my parents were taking me, you know, they owned a gay bookstore. They bought the gay bookstore in 1978. And so it kind of put me in that environment of being around all gay men all the time. That was the one place I was totally safe. It was the one place where I did not encounter any danger, any surreal danger, any danger whatsoever, because the sexuality that existed didn't have anything to do with children, didn't have anything to do with uh, something that I would see and be afraid of, you know, and it it was a really um, important way for me to grow up feeling safe, feeling heard, and feeling like I could just be myself and be okay. And so I think that that was really one of the most important things about my upbringing is that I was really allowed to be a child for a long time. And uh, again, I think within the gay community, my childhood persona is still encouraged i think we we do retain a bit of the eternal child which is a really youthful thing i love that
0: what were your first experiences of dating
1: i um had a lot of different kinds of relationships when i was young like like very intense relationships with girls that were not sexual but really like quasi-romantic and I, i realized like there must be something else going on because I was feeling so intensely for these girls and they sort of didn't really understand like why I would just be in tears over the smallest things and kind of hysterical about it. And then with boys, there was a lot of just kind of fumbling and weird, you know, those weird sort of like group dates that you go on and everybody's really uncomfortable. (laughs) So I, I didn't really sort of have like, dates per se until I was probably 16. And then um, I was a little bit in stand-up comedy and a little bit out of school. And so I was very uh, into that, like going out on dates with boys. I had a couple of boyfriends. They're not that memorable to me. I think uh, it was always the girls who would just that weren't even my girlfriends, but I would just be so upset over things like that would happen. And um, it clued me in that there was more happening under the surface. And I, I don't know. I mean, I think I always had these intense feelings for girls, but it, I wasn't really able to sort of name it until I was probably like 17.
0: And when you did name it, did you say bisexuality? Because I know you've sort of said in uh, interviews before that bisexual is, is what you are openly you know, saying you are, but it's also not the term that you think is exactly right for you.
1: Yeah, because it. I think it really, um, for me, It's too much of this idea that there only is male and female, which I think the gender is really on a spectrum and that the ideas of gender are really infinite. You can identify in so many ways that to say bisexual is really, it's wrong because it's like they're saying there's only two genders. So I think it's really wrong, but it's the one term that I guess I've used. I also have heard it described as I'm attracted to my gender and another gender so that's another way to look at it too which I think is probably
0: better I think we have our own gender here chosexual. I love it You can have that on me. Um, So you obviously said about starting dating and about sort of 16 is when you started with your um, stand up comedy as well. Um, Obviously, you mentioned before as well, that was when you kind of got into sort of drugs and alcohol and things like that. Was that like a, a rebelling against, you know, the people around you? What was your sort of frame of mind or state of mind at that point?
1: I think direct and alcohol was actually, it's way more than rebellion. It's more like relief. You know, when you grow up, I, I do think that I have like a lot of different things like depression and anxiety. And I'm always looking for relief, even in my hyper fixation as a child on things like climate change or whatever the, that in a sense was hyper fixating on a topic or an, a subject in order to get some kind of relief. And so Alcohol and drugs for me was a, an avenue to get relief, whatever that was, but may have been perceived as a kind of rebellion. And it does look like that because I was like a really good student and I was in this like kind of advanced high school and all that. And I really didn't want to do that anymore after blatant homophobia that I would see from these boys and, you know, just really feeling uncomfortable there. Uh, I think I was just looking for relief. I was also looking for a way to become an adult really quickly and Drugs and Alcohol afforded that, as well as um, being a stand-up comedian really afforded that. Like it made it possible for me to go out and be an adult, be perceived as an adult. And um I really like that feeling of empowerment.
0: What was the feeling of others around you at that time, friends and family? I mean, was there very much a support of your sexuality and your way of life? Or was there, you know, were there battles going on?
1: I think with my family, there were Uh, overall there was a kind of just they just didn't know what to do with me because I was just so beyond their understanding sexuality didn't really come into it because they were around gay people all the time so they understood well if she's gay if you're gay that's actually fine what they did have a problem with that they have a problem with to this day is this idea of bisexuality because they actually really don't believe it exists they think you're somehow fooling one side or the other that when you're um, inauthentic you're talking about bisexuality they think that you can only be gay or straight and that these um ideas of being someplace place in between or queer is odd. Uh, so my parents are really very old school about that in a in a way that is um they can't they're really immovable they don't want to hear it either way they're they're fab, they're happy if you're with somebody permanently and you're gay or straight and that's it so i think the, one of the things that's the most troubling to them still to this day is, is that I'm single. That's the most upsetting. Like you have to be partnered, which I I completely disagree. But so the sexuality wasn't the issue. The more uh, the more pressing problem was that I wasn't in school, and that was really upsetting. That was really something that they couldn't handle. But as a comedian, I became successful so early on that I was doing my earliest television appearances. You know. In my teens, in 18, 19, 20, I was making a good living already doing stand-up comedy even before I would have technically graduated high school had I graduated. So at that point, uh, they realized I knew what I was doing and and then sort of I got left alone, which is good.
0: Is that the point in your life when you kind of felt that you found your tribe as well?
1: I think that I felt comfortable and secure. Um, I was doing a lot of gay shows. I was doing shows at this venue in San Francisco called Josie's Juice Drink, which was a very legendary comedy club in the Castro. So I was doing shows there all the time with comedians like Scott Capuro uh, and Leah Delaria. We were always there and working on who we were going to come to be Later on, and uh, Lip Synca would often do shows there as well. And um, so you were seeing a lot of drag, you were seeing a lot of gay stand up comedy, which was really exciting. And I also became friends a little bit later with Scott Thompson from Kids in the Hall who was really the first openly gay comedian I, I remember in the mainstream on television with Kids in the Hall. And that was really impressive to me. And so I, I was really excited to become friends with him. And we're still very good friends to this day. So it was um, it was a good time. You know, I, I was really thrilled by the idea of gay comedy and comedy as it was emerging in
0: television. And was that your first experience in a queer safe space or had you been sort of clubbing and going to bars before that anyway?
1: I was definitely going to bars, going to a lot of queer events, different gay bars. Even though I was underage, I was able to go in and still do shows. So that was really great. There was a, a lot of that kind of stuff happening, a lot of AIDS fundraising. Um, so uh, HIV and AIDS Uh, kind of like fundraising, doing stuff for Brownie Mary. Brownie Mary was this amazing, legendary woman. She was a marijuana activist and she um, was constantly getting put in jail because she was making uh, marijuana edibles for gay men who were dying in hospice of AIDS. So she was trying to get them to eat again. And part of that was making these marijuana edibles that were very strong. And at that time, it was incredibly illegal. You know, the way that marijuana is legal now is mostly because of the work of activists like Brownie Mary who were really constantly kind of at the forefront of getting arrested and um still persevering and and getting um gay men who were dying some relief in their final days which is really impressive i think her history is really incredible and it's unfortunately a lot of that is lost because you know it's just you know think about we need to have a Brownie Mary movie i mean We need like we had milk. Now we need (laughs) our brownies because she really she she really deserves her accolades. But Brownie Mary once saw me at the base of the hill in Castro and she gave me a a brownie and I ate it. And I sat down on that hill and I did not leave for about eight hours. I was so high. I was so high. I'm still a little bit high
0: from the brownie (laughs) she gave me
1: back then. I was in spaces like that where you would, you know, kind of come across people like brownie mary that you would come across all sorts of different people all the drag that was happening it was all a very safe place it was a very political place and it was uh, so exciting
0: did you feel very confident at that time because um i've read that you worked as a sex phone operator Um, in your teens and also as a dominatrix now both of those jobs don't strike me as jobs that you can do if you're not confident in your own self in your own body in your own mind Uh, but you did it at an early age so you you were kind of confident i imagine at that point
1: i think confident in like that i was in a persona like i was playing somebody else but the sex phone operator that was like interesting because it was we got promoted So it was my friend who wrote these and then we would bring them in and we would read them like in a sound booth. So we actually weren't talking to anybody. I tried to do that at first and then we got promoted and we were doing these like voiceover readings. And so you're sort of playing a character. So in a way it was like a Spurling acting role. And then the dominatrix thing. That was, just, that was a mistake. I'm the terrible dominatrix. I really can't do it because I don't have what it takes. I, I don't, it, it, the part of the problem is it's not uh, sexually I- inspiring to me because I'm such a bottom. So I'm really not into it. I'm also not concerned with what it would, anybody would be into. So I'm, I, I think that anybody who does like dominatrix, like the dominatrix has to be so empathetic. I'm really not an empathetic person. <laughs> so i because they have to like know what something understand or like what somebody is going to feel or or be concerned with their feelings so there i i think i don't have that so i was a very uh, bad uh dominatrix i did i tried to assist on a couple of sessions and I, I was terrible at it there was one man who wanted a pie in the face then you would sort of go deeper and realize oh he wants you to shit on him and that uh, I couldn't do, but I was just like, well, why wouldn't you just, why don't you just go to the shit? Like, why are we going through all of these like, uh, charades to get to the shit? Like just, just open with shit. So he was very frustrating to me. Yeah. I think a dominatrix, like I know a lot of professional doms and I just have so much respect for them because they're like therapists, they're like healer, you know, all of these different things wrapped up in this idea of it's, to me, it's not even sex work. It's, it's so beyond. What's like shaman is probably closer to what it is.
0: Did you ever? Did you have any regular clients? And did you have any clients that came back maybe later on when you were a successful comedian? Say, hey, remember me? I'm I'm the pie man.
1: <laughs> no, no, I I I don't know if I would look forward to that. But I haven't, <laughs> I haven't seen anybody. I didn't have. I I was. I didn't do it. I only did it a couple of times. I didn't have any regulars, and I didn't have any sense of that this was going to be a profession. And I, <laughs> I've been around the world. You know, I hosted. Uh, the Fol- Folsom Street Fair not long ago. And I, I'm i always on the outskirts of the world of it. I love the world of BDSM. I'm not on the top side. Although I've tried to look to becoming a service top and do suspension bondage, which is very advanced. And so my friend Midori, I've taken her classes and tried to get better of that. Also, I'm not good at engineering. So it's th- <laughs> those are things that I'm not great at. So I, I'm, I'm still learning.
0: So it's a work in progress on that front. That's right. Let's talk about auditioning and then being accepted for the San Francisco School of the Arts. That must have been a moment for you, a moment of acceptance, a moment of success and a moment of, I don't know, almost like opening a Pandora's box of what could be.
1: Yes, that was really great, but also a school that I didn't finish, but it was a great school to go to and uh, was what introduced me to doing stand-up comedy in nightclubs. You know, I had a teacher who would sign us up for these uh, comedy nights at very big like comedy clubs and she was really encouraging which i can't believe she was taking that initiative but i'm i'm really grateful to her for doing that so my first experiences within comedy clubs was because of that which is really great
0: Did you ever have any moments of um, crisis, either with your career or your sexuality, um, when you suddenly thought, no, I've taken the wrong path? Because it seems to me when you read about your life, Margaret, it always seems to be somebody that's been very not determined, but very sort of sure about the direction that they wanted to take in life. Or have there been moments of crisis?
1: I think there's always moments of crisis. I I mean, I have them still, you know, I'm like, what am I doing? (laughs) What am I doing? I really love my career as a comedian. It's, it's the one thing that I've always been sure of. Like, I know that's what I'm supposed to do. And it's a big part of my social life. That's not really where I I feel like, oh, it's gone wrong. It's more like um, with sexuality, it's more like, what am I, why, what am I doing? Like, this is like, so, I, I'm really adventurous. And then I'll do things that I just don't feel any uh, sense of eroticism towards. And then I'm like, what am I? What am I doing this? Like that happens if you go into like the kink communities. There are people that are, have really weird kinks. And I, I like the people, but then I try to participate in the kinks. And I'm like, "What? what is this even? Like there was a man who wanted to set my leg on fire. So he would put hand sanitizer and then light it. And then it would just blow. Like I didn't feel the heat of it or anything. It was more like this trick. And I'm like, how is that sexual? Like I don't know how any of that is sexual. Like I don't get it. Some things I don't get. And that's where I question. I'm like, this is, what am I doing? That that has happened a number of times.
0: But I love the fact that you don't question it for other people, though. I mean, I think that's so refreshing. If everybody in the world was like Margaret Cho in that respect, then the world would be a much better place.
1: Thank you. I agree. No, I don't question them liking it. I mean, I appreciate. That's why I want to participate. Like, maybe I'll discover something in there that I'll, if I can see it from your perspective, maybe I can engage. I, I've never quite... Figured it out. Whether that's pony play, I don't get it.
0: (laughs) Are there any kinks that you have tried and you did love and you were surprised that you loved?
1: Um, Yes, uh, the TENS unit. I love the TENS unit. Really didn't think I was going to like it, but something about electro play really does it for me. And I didn't realize it's not pain. It's more just like manipulating electricity in a very low low wattage, whatever, uh, low low frequencies to get your nerves to sort of work more quickly. That's great. And I didn't realize that was going to be a thing for me. So I'm a big TENS unit person, not so much the Violet Wand. I don't love the Violet Wand, but I love the TENS unit. And I actually have a number of them and I use them. I love them.
0: And how easy do you find, I mean, when you do meet a partner or you go into a relationship or hook up or whatever uh, to bring that up? I mean, is it there from, you know, the moment you walk in, right, right. I like this. I like this. I like this. Or do you treat dating and potential partners as a voyage of discovery and let them discover or do you lay it all out?
1: Oh, I lay it all out. Like I show people like, oh, well, you know, we can do this and this and this is what I like. And then, you know, they can show me what they like and. And in that way, I think it's really, As I mean, as, as I get older, that's my manner of introduction. As I, when I was younger, I was like, oh, let's, you know, it's so romantic to, to discover those things. But now I'm like, I don't, I don't think that's my, my journey, really. I really like just to tell people like, oh, so just take the mystery out of it, which is fun too. And can be really sexy to just kind of very matter-of-fact explain all this stuff, because I love sex toys. So I have a very large collection of different kinds and things that I like to use. And then also things that I don't necessarily like, but I have on hand that maybe they may be able to use or, or maybe be able to appreciate. So that's, for me, the fun part is like the, the toy box and all the things that are in it and the explanations and everything's got a story, and I, I love that.
0: Do you get to take the tour, the toy box on tour? Cause I mean, you are constantly on tour around the world. You're celebrating, obviously, at the moment, 40 years of doing stand up comedy, which is, which is just brilliant with your fabulous live and livid tour. Does the toolbox get taken on tour with you from place to place?
1: No, no. Um, sometimes different elements of it. Maybe like I have a couple of beautiful Bethany Vernon jewels. There's like one thing that's like it looks like a brass knuckles, but you turn it inside and it's for hand jobs, and it's made out of like pearls, and it's really incredible. So that one may get a spin somewhere because it's jewelry. I love that. Like I have a couple of things that are jewelry that are like vibrators, which I think are really great. But in general, uh, the toy box, the, the now is sort of like toy closet is at home. Certainly, nothing like that gets taken on the road. But uh, just maybe the little pieces.
0: I know you, it's like having favorite children. You have favorite tools that you take on the road with you.
1: That's right. Yeah, you bring it. You bring it along, and then you know, for me, it's just a fun thing to have, and it's fun thing
0: to show off. Do you find that people ever get intimidate, intimidated by your sexuality, intimidated by your your strength and confidence?
1: I don't know, maybe I don't know. Like I think, uh, in general, as I get older, it's it's less of a uh, sort of a thing that I've had to kind of deal with. Or I'm also a lot more selective about people that I'm engaging with, and a lot more open about that. You know.
0: I've got to ask you as well. I mean, you are such an icon to the queer community. And it feels for me, I mean, I'm, I'm I'm a similar age to you, born in 1968. So it feels to me that Margaret Cho has always been there as like a shining light. You've had so many beautiful moments in your life, I imagine. But is there one rainbow-flavoured, proud moment that you look back on and think, yeah, that was particularly good?
1: I love doing the, it was like the big queer march on Washington. That was like an incredible... Gay Pride in in, uh, Sydney, the Mardi Gras. It's like so incredible. I did that with Cyndi Lauper. And any of the things that I've got to do with Cyndi Lauper have been really phenomenal. Um, Touring with her, I think it was like the 2005 and six, and different capacities for the True Colors Tour, which was her big queer festival. It was like a summer concert, the big festival that had uh, Joan Jett and it had Debbie Harry and it had all of these... people like, um, erasure was there. Indigo girls were there sometimes doing that with the Dresden dolls. And, um, I shared a bus with the Dresden dolls. And so we were just in this sort of really magical tour going everywhere together and just so exciting. And, um, to be able to sort of MC that all over it was really a phenomenal very rainbow experience
0: one of the questions that i wanted to ask you on this podcast was have you ever done the gay holiday but i kind of feel it's a bit it's a bit redundant that question with you because i mean you love to spend a lot of your time in fire island which for me i mean i've never been there seems to be the perfect nirvana when it comes to the gay getaway
1: that's right well it's paradise and it's well to me i split it between fire island and provincetown i've been going to provincetown since uh, 1986, Provincetown is really the place, you know, like, I mean, and Fire Island too. I've been going to Fire Island a little later since, from 2008. So both places a long time and spent many summers in both places. And it's so great. But uh, Provincetown is exciting because I'm really good friends with a lot of the drag queens who do like summer long shows there. And then at the end of the night, um, everybody gets out of drag and we go bike riding in the cemetery, which is so fun to go with like a bunch of drag queens out of drag. Now we're going to go fly on our little bicycles all through the cemetery and tell ghost stories. And to me, that's the best part of summer.
0: Oh, I want your life right now. And I've got to ask, is Fire Island exactly as it was portrayed in the film Fire Island that you were in?
1: Yes, it's very, very close. It's a little bit closer to like the like the rivalry between the Pines and Cherry Grove, that sort of thing. And it, it is like, it is the cast of crew uh, of the same crew of people that you're going to see and the same kinds of social class dynamics that are going on. But yeah, very, very close to reality um, as it is portrayed in the movie. I think the movie should be a series of films because we didn't capture all of it. And I would love to reunite with, with Joel and and beautiful Bowen to do it again.
0: Let's make that happen. Um, if you are on holiday or if you're in a gay club, if you're in a safe space and there is one tune that's going to get you on that dance floor, throwing some shapes, what would that tune be, Margaret?
1: Oh, I think it's always going to be, um, You make me feel body Real Like that's always like, that to me is the anthem. Um, and Oh, like I got the tour with Erasure. So I, Anytime I hear Andy's voice, it's just, a it calls to me. Like, it's just so beautiful. It's in my soul. Um, to me, uh, any also Bronski beat, like, sometimes slip down, sometimes not as, like, people need to, like, remember. And and you know what is the, you know, the primal call is Alison Moyette midnight.
0: <laughs> Gorgeous <laughs> it's, tunes, it's, all of those.
1: It's so beautiful. So anything, yeah, Alison anything like that i love it
0: okay final question you can have the perfect lgbtq plus dinner date five guests come to dinner with margaret cho they can be dead alive lgbtq or otherwise really as long as they're famous so we know who they are who are you going to pick and why
1: gosh um i think well leslie chung leslie chung was an amazing canto pop star who uh Unfortunately died. He was uh not openly gay, but I think in that time period, you know, it was so conservative then. He committed suicide in in Hong Kong and he um, you know, he was gonna be outed, so he decided to die. And um he called his hag and said, Meet me at this hotel. And she was standing outside the hotel and he jumped. And so that like story to really stuck with me, and I want to ask him about it. So for Leslie Chung. Uh, when I visited Hong Kong I bought him a paper iPhone because uh the new iPhone had come out and I drew a grinder on it and then I I burned it at the temple so he could have an iPhone in heaven with grinder because he'd never seen it That's so adorable. I, I love him and I I wish that I could spend time with him so he would be my number one guest um along with uh Jonathan Vaness. they are just a, a a dream to be with and they have they have and I've had many a meal together and I would love to to be with Jonathan. Um also I think little Nas X. I just love little Nas X. All of the different things. I don't know. I, I just I love Little Nas X. I love, I love, I love, I love. Uh, and then too, I think Trixie and Katya.
0: That is a perfect dinner party, right there. Um, Margaret Cho, can I say thank you so much for joining me today here on a gay old time uh, live and livid across America at the moment. We need it here in the UK as well. Continue to do what you do. I mean, you are such an in such an inspiration to every member of our queer community. And I think today you have proved definitely that your life is a gay old time. Thank you. That's it for this episode of A Gay Old Time. Thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Margaret as much as I did. My thanks to her for sharing her story and being so fabulously revealing. If you'd like to experience more Rainbow Joy, then please subscribe and follow the podcast on Apple, Spotify or wherever you're listening right now. Maybe on the Gaydio app and do share it to anyone else you think would love to listen in. If you'd like to follow the podcast online as well, head to the Instagram account at a podcast, And you can also find out more at allthews.nigelmay.net. Thanks a million to Juliet at Pineapple Audio Production for making everything so gorgeous and sparkly. I'll be back soon with another episode featuring a deep and meaningful with another inspirational individual. Until then, from me, Nigel May, I send all the love and hope that whatever you're up to today, if it applies to you, that you're having a gay old time. Enjoy!